0: Education is a hot topic these days, even in the design world. Are design schools worth the time and money? Are students learning what they need to know to prepare them to work for other design studios and then perhaps to go out on their own? Have the curricula kept up with changing lifestyles, clients, and the increasing use of technology? And especially in this age of COVID, how can even the best design schools function and move ahead? I'm fortunate to have with me today two distinguished alumni of one of the country's most prominent design schools, and the president of that institution, the New York School of Interior Design, whose many famed graduates include Rose Tarlow, Robert Metzger, and Mika Erdogan, among many others. First up is Penny Drew Baird, an AD100 designer who has been featured in that magazine literally dozens of times. She's known for creating classically elegant apartments and beach houses that have continental flair, but are always supremely functional. She's the author of several books, including her most recent, On Interior Design, itself a kind of primer on design. Welcome, Penny.
1: Thank you, Michael, for having me.
0: Okay, glad you're here. Drew McGuckin, who graduated from New York School of Interior Design a decade ago, has since become known for rooms that are bold and colorful, full of contemporary furnishings and a masterful mix of patterns and graphic elements. He's a rising star in the New York design world. Hello, Drew. Hi there. Glad to be here with you guys. Thank you. And finally, I'm pleased to have with us the president of the New York School of Interior Design, David Spruels. David was appointed in 2012 after working in admissions there and at Albright College and at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Welcome, David.
2: Hi, Michael. Great to be with you and great to be with Drew and Penny.
0: Thank you. Okay, before we get started, I just want to thank... Catriona Pitcairn, a student at the Inchbald School of Design in London, who suggested this topic. And we're very grateful. And if you yourself have any ideas of your own for the podcast, please let us know. So now I want to get started. Penny, why don't we start with you in terms of what I'd love to know is what you felt was one of the most important things you learned at design school. And then maybe if you want to tell me something that you wish you had learned there.
1: There's no doubt about it. For me, the most important thing in design school was learning drafting. We were not doing CAD in those days and drafting and hand drafting was really a crucial skill to learn. And I use it till this very day. I sit uh-huh. on my floor with my pens and my pencils and my scale ruler and I draw things all times of day and night, not in my office. So, I would say drafting was the most important. Okay, and
0: they were like studio. I'm, I never went to design school, so I'm totally neutral on this topic. But it's studio classes that taught you that? How did it work?
1: Yes, yeah, so it was regular academic classes with a component of, you know, practicing and homework.
0: Right. Okay, and what about the one thing you wish you had learned?
1: Well, I think that this is um, an odd answer, but I wish that I had learned really had really fine-tuned perspective drawing. I can do some pers- perspective drawing, but not the to the level that I show my clients. I right. use other people to do those drawings. Right, right. But I wish I could actually do it. And I do think that it, there's a talent component, but right. I didn't get to really try.
0: Right. I understand. Drew, what about you? Same question. Um, I think one of the things, probably the best
3: thing I learned, the biggest thing I learned is uh, the art of collaboration. I think when I went to design school, I always knew that I wanted to create a business that was bigger than just me. And so in, in my first studio classes, I, there were about four or five students and I, I kind of rallied everyone and said, look, someone be the lead designer on their project. And then we got a team of four people to help you execute. And then we flip to the next person. So over the course of putting together presentations, we had this little assembly line of five people. One person was the lead designer and the other four were the helpers. This was the days of gluing presentation boards together and folding fabric samples over. And, you know, it was was a little pre everything being as digitized as it is now. So that was in the very beginning. I just thought I'm not always going to do this by myself.
0: How am I going to manage a team? Right. Well, especially when you're starting out, you generally work for another designer. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. So in other words, you had kind of, a pre-COVID design bubble of, of <laughs> uh, students that you worked with and you would continue for this semester. It was very interesting. Okay, great. And what's the one thing you wish you had learned that you didn't feel you got a grasp of? You know, and I don't think there would have been a way to learn it, but now
3: I'd rephrase it as if you could go back, what would you learn that you didn't? And I would love to have more of the computer modeling skills, just the time in in a scholastic atmosphere to sit down and really learn some of those programs more deeply than just the, like, bird's eye view that I have now, so many of my teammates and, you know, staff members have those skills that I I just wish I could sit down at night and, you know, model a chair out of nowhere. It's just not my skill set right now. Right.
0: Well, I can barely use my iPhone. So, Um, (laughs) and I'm not sure that even, David, was that even a part of the curriculum then? Because this is one of the things I want to ask you about, David, is, you know, this idea of principles versus practicalities. You know, I, I, I was a student of the humanities, and, you know, but so, there's so much emphasis now on schools and colleges and schools becoming almost job placement things. You know, are you, know, you, you going to be able to get a job when you get out of there? And you know, I was always taught that higher education was about teaching you to think. So how do you balance that at the New York school?
2: It's a great question, actually. Um, So, I've I've actually been at the New York School of Interior Design, (NYSID) for uh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the first eight years, I was director of admissions. Um, So, I was dealing with people like Drew. I remember meeting Drew when he came to tour the school.
3: You did? Uh,
2: Oh, my goodness. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so So, I was actually not only working, getting people into the institution and reviewing portfolios, but many times, I had to actually educate people about what interior design is, because people come in with sort of these preconceived notions. Uh, and they usually come at it from the shelter magazines, the TV right. shows, and now Pinterest and all the other things that we can find online. Um, but, and so they tend to come at it more from the, the decorative aspect of it. And so I have to a lot of times tell people about the technical aspect of it. And Drew, you're alluding to that. And, and even Penny, what you're talking about. So the curriculum is extremely extensive. Uh, and we have certain accreditations that we need to keep and in order to have these accreditations. Uh, you have to have certain things in the curriculum. And and I can tell you, our 132-credit Bachelor of Fine Arts is full of coursework and electives that students are required to take. And it's very, very rigorous. And it, it is everything from the hand drawing that, Penny, you're you're, you're talking about, to all the computer programs, um, the, the virtual reality that we're now teaching, the, the Revit. And so there's an awful lot to learn. And I think, Drew, some, like what you're talking about, sometimes there are certain classes you kind of just take, but they don't sort of sink in until you're out there actually practicing. Yeah.
0: Um, and
2: and so I think that's one of the challenges for, I know for, from that. for students and, and practicing designers. Right. Well, I
3: think for me, Revit was a brand new program. Like my last semester of AutoCAD, Revit was sort of the new, you know, guy on the street in that world. And I remember we got like half a semester of Revit, this new program. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is, you know, you know, one button and everything becomes 3D. I love it, you know.
2: And now, we, now we have practicing designers coming back to take our continuing edu- education classes to brush up on Revit. Right. Um, exactly. so things are happening and changing so quickly in right. terms of technology.
0: And I guess that's another question: is how do you keep up with technology? You know, because there are always new programs, new apps, and all of that. Like Penny, I'm sure you defer to your staff to do that because you know we've talked about this. You and I are not high tech people, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there and. How do you balance between learning the principles, learning to draw? Because, like, most of the really, really talented architects and designers I know all hand draw or love hand drawing, and they feel that it's much more expressive than CAD or Reddit or whatever. But so how do you balance that? David, how do they do that in terms of curriculum or, Penny, how do you do it in your staff?
1: Well, You know, as the younger designers are coming into my staff, they are all equipped with those skills. So, as needed, they perform them. But when we do our big design presentation, everything is hand drawn. I think it's more compelling for the client. It looks more bespoke. It looks less cold. And it has a sexy quality. So, we're still doing a lot of the old techniques in terms of our most important presentations. And I personally, don't do rivet, but mm-hmm. I have people in my office who can do the necessary
2: things. Right. You know, and I I think there's something emotional that comes through with the hand drawings. And I think the, agree. the, the I computer, agree. The, computer exactly. the computer renderings, I think they're unbelievable in how lifelike they can be, but, but interior spaces, there's, they're, they're emotional. It's something that we interact with. We surround ourselves with.
1: We've had a big controversy about using com- computer renderings. And I have, Categorically stayed away from them, and one of the reasons is I don't think that they make the rooms look compelling to the client. I think that they work against the, making the sale, and I think that when you do a hand drawing, you there the people know that they're not looking at the exact thing that they're having. They know that they're looking at an idea of what they're having or a close idea of what they're having. So there's all this room for them to imagine what they're having. When you do the rendering of a room, it's very cold, as David was saying, but it also, I feel it opens up the, the can of worms where the client will say, oh, I don't really want the draperies like that. I don't really want that. You know, and I think that I just don't think the drawings look compelling. They don't. And it exactly speaks to what David said, the emotional level. Right. right. So we've rejected it.
0: But do you use them in terms of a working thing pre-presentation? Yes.
1: Yes. So, of course, we are doing a lot of technical drawings all the time for placement, for lighting, for locations, for interaction with the GCs all the time.
3: Right. But I think Penny is touching on something which I always call the romance of, of it all, the nuance and the romance of the drawing, the idea generation part of it. If you can sort of whisper it away and into a beautiful hand drawing or even a sketch, you know, many times in meetings, I just flip a flip a piece of paper over and Great. sketch it out and sell the idea exactly like that. I did it too. And then the technical drawings often, you know, don't the client doesn't even after that moment, after that sketch, they buy right in and like, oh my gosh, I think it's part magic that you just did it on the back of. A notebook a paper that, or the, you know, the napkin, exactly. And, uh, and then part that just that trust, you know, I think there's a really, there's a beautiful trust that's built when you're like, okay, I've hired a real artist here. I've hired a real creative person. They're, they've got me, they're going to take care of me.
2: We did an exhibition a few years ago about Jeremiah Goodman's drawings, and right. just think of like, think of those. And just the, the, they talk about the romance, you know, the romance, the emotion, the and drama. The, exactly, exactly. We still we still teach. Obviously, we teach all the technical uh, programs, and a lot of the younger students they come in and they say, "Why do you, why is there a hand rendering class that I need to take?" I mean, everything it's all on computers now. And number one goes back to I think emotion. And Drew, you just said this. I tell them if you are Going to pitch yourself to get it to get a client, and you're sitting down with that client, and you've got reams and reams of technical drawings and computer computer drawings, and they say, you know what? I don't like that. You've got to be able to pull out a piece of paper and say, well, let's think this, let's think this through, and start drawing and sketching right in front of them, because because there's somebody in the waiting room behind you who also wants this job. But so you've got to be able to think quickly and and, and draw, um, and 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 there's something between the brain and the fingertips that I think that gets lost on a keyboard or on a mouse. And I
1: must say that a hand-rendering course does not a renderer make.
2: True. I agree.
0: Right. Well, it's like going to art school. Not everybody who goes to art school is going to turn out to be, you know, Bryce Martin or... I um, can hold
2: a paintbrush. I'm not an artist. Right. right.
1: But that speaks exactly to the very first question that you asked me when I said I wish I had learned to draw more. There, There may have been just as so far I would have been able to go, but I took it, I took such a little amount of it. How do I know that? And it is a skill that I wish I had and did not have to rely on other people. I can do a drawing on a napkin when I when someone wants to understand what a tete tete is, but I can't draw this whole room in two seconds um,
3: One of my big memories at Nice, and I can't remember if it was a design process class or if it was a, you know, residential design one studio, but one of my instructors along the way you were not allowed to move to computer drafting until you had completed a project and gotten an A in hand, and it was completely done by hand. So you're, you started the class by hand. And then by the end, you could graduate yourself to doing everything in CAD and presenting your elevations, you know, drafted on the computer. But the first set you had to master the hand drafted part of it before you could move to the computer. Yeah, and we, then, had, we,
2: we still require the hand drafting. And I've had one faculty member say, you know, we, you, but you have to be able to walk before you can run.
3: Yeah.
1: However, I hardly ever interview anyone who can do it.
0: It's
3: true, because I think you move on from it so quickly these days.
0: Well, I guess that's another problem. And this is, this is a question that I, you know, this I suppose is my bombshell question, if you want to think of it that way, which I wanted to ask Penny and Drew. It's like, David, you have to stay on the side on this one for a second. But like, when you're interviewing for staffers or, you know, to work with you on projects, do you prefer? People who went to design school. is that Does that give everybody a leg up in terms 100% of?
1: 100% yes. 100%
0: yes for me yes. too. Okay. My
3: first stipulation, it has been very rare that I've hired anyone that did not graduate or was not actively participating in design school at that moment.
0: Agree. Okay. Because I'm then, so David, now you can step in because you, you won this round. Everybody agrees on good the importance answers, of good design. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. You should be happy. Um, but my question is, and how do you balance? Because I, I know somebody who later in life decided he wanted to become a designer after a very successful career and a totally different one and went to New York School of Interior Design. But he, and he loved it and he learned so much. But he did say to me afterwards that he then had to take subsequent courses on CAD because he didn't have the technical knowledge. So how do you, in, term, in determining the curriculum, how do you decide where the emphasis should be, is there a certain number of credits everybody has to take in certain areas? You know, listen, I I love the idea of of all the proto designers sitting around drawing all day, but, you know, if you're working with a lighting contractor or an architect or whatever, you've got to have, as Penny was saying, all those highly technical drawings and things to give to them.
2: Yeah, I completely understand the question. And, with the New York School of Interior Design is unique in that we have a number of different programs. Like you can actually take a one-year certificate. You can do a two-year associates. You can do a four-year Bachelor of Fine Arts, which is a professional level program. So somebody who will have these incredible skills that we were discussing, um, all the technological abilities, as well as the, the hand rendering abilities, they're not going to do our one-year certificate program. Um, they're going to be saying for either the associates or the BFA or even one of our graduate programs and post-professional programs. Um, so, like I said earlier, there's an awful lot to learn uh, within a professional level program. I, I mean, it's I think incredibly it's, complicated. It's, it's, to exactly. I mean, I think. But again, going back to what I was saying earlier about educating somebody about what the profession is about and design education in particular, uh, it's it's equivalent to to, arch- to an architecture degree. I mean, this is not something that is taken lightly. To me, interior design. Again, when explaining it it's like a Venn diagram. You've got one circle, which is architecture, and another circle, which is the decorative arts aspect of it. And where those two circles overlap, that's interior design. It's less of the engineering aspect of architecture, and again, more, and and leans a little bit more towards finishes and space planning, which we get in an interior design education, which, sorry, architects, they don't get as much in the architecture programs as we do in interior design. And how much emphasis, or I guess, what's the percentage in
0: terms of students, in terms of wanting to work in hospitality versus residential. How do you balance? Does everybody have to take both? How does that work?
2: Yeah, um, in our professional level programs, it's evenly divided between residential design and contract commercial design. And we start off the the first studios that the students take are focused mainly on residential design and they sort of learn their skills that way uh, and then they take their first contract class their first contract but why is
1: that is that in order for them to have a sampling of everything in the design industry and then select the area that they feel comfortable or that they're interested in
2: yes it, it, it's so they can see everything that's out there and, and many times People come to the New York School of Interior Design thinking they want to get into residential design. This is this is what we know. This is when we, we grow up in homes and apartments, and and this is what we know. But once they take that first contract class, and 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 they do a hospitality project, usually that's when they're like, wow, all these other exciting areas open up. And in the contract area, they they we focus on hospitality, we focus on office design, uh, we focus on healthcare design. Um, so it, it and it and it does many times at graduation, I'll speak to students or look at their final thesis projects. And I'll ask them about it. And i said, say, how did you, how did you, why this thesis project? And they will tell me like, you know, I thought I was going to do residential design, but the, I discovered healthcare. And I realized that there, there's, there's data out there that actually shows good design can help us heal. That makes me feel good.
1: Hi, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish Trade program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade only customer service hotline. New this year, we're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us. And in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C H A I R I S H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show.
0: Okay, and that brings up another point that I want to get you, you know, clearly interior design historically has been kind of an elitist profession. People who can spend a lot of money whether it's designing a hotel or an office or a home, the people who commission those are generally wealthier people. So how, and you know, and we all know now that diversity is a huge topic, how do you think And I'd love to hear from all of you, not just David, how do you think we can get this profession to be more open and to reach out to more um, students and young practitioners of of color, of different ethnicities, all of that, to make it a more design, a more wide open world? I mean, what what is this school trying to do in terms of that, David?
2: Well, the, the great question. One of the first residential projects the students do is a Park Avenue drawing room. But by the time they graduate, by the time they finish their programs, they'll also might have done an experiential learning class where they're redesigning a nonprofit victim women's abuse shelter, where they're actually physically going out and meeting with that these shelters with the individuals living there, the people working there, and coming up with plans on how to redesign them. And um, that's one of the projects that the students recently did. They also redesigned a police precinct out in Brooklyn uh, to make it more welcoming uh, to the community. I mean, so they are being exposed. Um, not only to what you might, we might traditionally think of being interior design, but th- like I said earlier, design can th- change the way we live, the way we interact with each other, on all levels and with all people. So we have to be open and and expose our students to all types of design. Okay. And do you reach out to minority schools, you know, heavily minority
0: schools, to try and get students to be to sign up to? to come to NYSID? Or do you have scholarship programs? Because I think one of, you know, it's great that they all go out and look at housing for abused women or whatever it might be. But, you know, at the same time, you don't want a bunch of privileged white young people going in, looking at police precincts and that. So how do how do we, how, how can we diversify? I mean, I'm not asking you to solve this question. It's a big question, I know. But what is the school doing to do that? And then I'd love to know from Penny and Drew in terms of they're hiring, or what they're trying to do to we diversify. Are actively,
2: we're actively having these discussions right now. A number of years ago, we had a public program with the Black Interior Designers Network, um, and it was the room was packed. And the discussions, the discussion that I heard there among Black designers was truly eye opening for me. And at that point, we started having internal discussions at the school about how we can attract, support uh, students of color, not only through the recruitment process, but also academically, financially, and emotionally, and as an as alums. And we've we've established a um, diversity scholarship. Uh, we're going to start fundraising around that. We have also just uh, established a commission on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, that in a year's time is going to be producing and presenting a report to me and the board of trustees on some meaningful actionable items that we can we, that we can address. But I'm not saying we're also not waiting for that. We've over the past year. Ellen Fisher, our Vice President for Academic Affairs, and her team have been been looking at every single course within the curriculum on how to be more inclusive and make sure that we are hearing everybody's voice. And that 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 comes through the classes that we're teaching.
0: That's great. I mean, we're all starting here. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to portray anybody as not doing enough because God knows I haven't done enough. But like, I'd love to get a sense from Drew and Penny. Like in terms of hiring or mentorships, how how do you go about that? Because I, one of the things that Penny and I've talked about is she said in a way she wished she'd done an internship when she was a student to get hands-on training. Are there ways that you guys, Penny, is there ways that you're trying to reach out or Drew? You know, we've,
3: for for almost my entire I mean, well, I'm 10 years in. Maybe for six, at least six, seven years of it. I've done an internship program. I've done a mentorship program with NYSID for four or five years. You know, and through the through the mix. And I was actually going to compliment David and and NYSID even you know before David's time, which is long ago. But the school itself always felt very just diverse, especially an international level of like. Culture and people, and I—I I never felt like there was a lack. I think we can, to your point, Michael. We can all do better. We can all open up. There's, I think, a, a whole new set of voices that that we're hearing and and want to relate to. But I will say, I think Nice is a super duper welp- welcoming place. I kind of feel a bit, you know, the same in terms of our internships or mentoring opportunities. I I, I just think of. You know, the just vast diversification of human beings that I've like walked through some coming from far flung parts of the globe, you know, wanting to be a part of this design life in New York City. So in that in that way, I mean, my barn door is kind of wide open. I'm just looking for great talent. And 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 then I just think it's you know cream rises to the top from there. But you know I, I don't necessarily have a rubric of the kind of person I'm looking for. I'm I'm just looking for style and grace and sophistication and you know talent, just raw creativity. You know something. Hardly that just,
1: anything. He has very low uh, standards there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. I, I would, I would like
1: I would like two people a year to come to me with all of those qualities. Yeah,
3: exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. No, it's not easy. And I think we'll have to work on it harder. Now, here's another thing that I've, many designers have discussed with me over the years is they feel that their young staffers, and, and this again gets back to the humanities and the, which I you know that idea of the principles versus practicalities. They feel that the younger designers don't understand design history. And what to do about that? Like, Penny, have you found that in, the, in terms of the young people that you've hired?
1: Yes, and I have plenty to say about interns. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Fia, this is your opportunity, darling.
1: In in terms of design history and, and knowing and coming to the table with some of that knowledge, I think it's a very important aspect of becoming a good designer. I think that... You know, when the impressionists started to paint, they had all the background of all of the classicism from before. They didn't just go out and say, oh, we're going to splatter paint all around and now we're impressionists. And I think design is like that too. I think, you know, if you say there's nothing new under the sun, there is a new way to spin it, but you need all of that background to get get there, to spin it. I don't think, with rare exception, there are designers that just burst forth with some new, brilliant, clever, and unbelievable way of attacking design. There are a couple, but I think that for the most part, we're all building on years and years and years of training. So for example, in France, it's very hard to get a decorating job because the women all think that they can do it. They think they have 2000 years of experience and they do. So I'm not saying that most of my friends' apartments look very nice, but these women don't need designers because they can go out there and they can do something. And I think that not having that history, no interns that I have, no graduates from the New York School of Interior Design that I have know one thing about antiques when they come to work for me. And stab in in the heart. (laughs) Even in this 20 years. Historical styles. yeah, even in, what does
3: that mean?
0: <laughs> even in this
1: 20, 20 years where we're not really in New York doing much traditional work, that background is missing. I mean, I tell someone, even a word like trapunto, they don't know what I mean.
0: Well, David, you need to be that stab in the heart. You need a chance to recuperate from that. So listen, I'm one of those people who grew up, I learned interior design really from the shelter magazines, which is probably why I ended up in working in them for so long. You know, yeah, as may I, said, I say
1: something? I actually learned interior design also from magazines and books. And then I went back to right. the New York School of Interior Design to learn the technical aspect right. that I did not have.
3: Right. Well, I think that's, isn't that part of the falling in love with design to, to want to be a designer? You sort of catch on to the fact that you've got all of this innate sensibility. And people always ask me, what did you learn in design school? What did, you, what, what did design school teach you? And my standard response, I've been saying it forever, is I don't know that it so much taught me things that I didn't know, maybe some technical things, but that innate sensibility that makes me a designer, design school refined that for me. It gave me words to describe it. It gave me tools to execute. it. it Very it, well said. It lifted me out of that feeling of, I want to do this, I know this, I know that belongs together and these things group like this. And, but I didn't have a language. I didn't have a, a toolkit you know, to, to give that, you know, to build wings. So that flies into, you know, something beautiful. Exactly. But touching back to Penny on the history thing, the other thing that I would love to just have an opportunity to say to young designers coming in, I think there's also history on the job that is so much learning ah, that just
1: That's a whole nother topic. It's a
3: whole different kind of history. So yes, you're coming to the table with all this knowledge and an understanding of design and design history and furniture and antiques and periods and all these kind of things. But then there's also this history of experience. And I find that many young designers walk in the door and, you know, that like six months later, they're looking for the avenue to take over the firm. And I'm just like, how about six years from now, after you've, you know, led a couple of projects, you fall, you've fallen a couple of times, you've cost the firm five, $10,000, $11,000 in mistakes a couple of times. Now we're building history, you know? And that I feel like some of the young designers are very well
1: are said, very well said,
3: missing that. Of the program,
1: but that speaks to my internship topic that we didn't really finish, which is I believe, and I don't know this from an educating point of view, David. You do, I think that a year internship should be required of every student for graduation, and there could be a stipend for that. I pay all of my interns, but I know many, many well known designers in New York do not.
2: But we we require all of our internships to be paid, so
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I pay mine too.
1: So I absolutely 100% think it should be a requirement for graduation. I I don't feel that anyone that comes to me, in it doesn't matter which New York-based school they come from, know one thing when they arrive in my office other than all those technical skills, which they may be better or worse at. But then I'm basically teaching them how to be a designer for the next year or more. And sometimes I, it's really taxing and I really resent it. So, I think that the, that they have to, it's, it speaks exactly to what to Drew said. It's, it's in the end, it's all about experience. There can be some amount that's talent. There can be the, some amount that's technical. And then there's this much that's about the experience. And even today, even today, I make a mistake or I learn something that I didn't realize.
2: No, I agree. In- internships and experiential learning are, are part of the curriculum and are key because there's True, going back to what you were talking about earlier, there's a vocabulary that you learn in design school, um, but I also liken it to driving a car. You can read the manual, but you need to get out there and actually start driving before you actually understand it. 100%. Uh, yeah, so, so and that spark that the students come to, they, they come to the institution, they come to the the colleges, the programs um, with this desire to learn. And I don't know, sometimes they're coming from reading shelter magazines. Sometimes they're coming from the TV shows like we were talking about earlier, but but they somebody who has that innate desire to learn and to, to take this, the, the, the skills that they have or they think that they have and to hone them. Um, they, we, we, we give the, the vocabulary. There's, the, there's a technical aspect in design education that, that, gets, that is also married with aesthetics and the history of design. Um, I'm Penny, I hear what you're saying, but also I'm also proud of the New York School of Interior Design and in that we have the largest design history curriculum of any program in the country. And students are required to take a certain number of design history credits, again, because they need to know where we've come from in order to know where we're going. Again, it's that vocabulary that has to be taught. And there's that aesthetic value that comes from understanding uh, designers, what they're doing in the past, what architects were doing in the past. Uh, and and you, take those, you take that, you take those tools, add that to the technical aspect, and then, you, and then they go out and work for designers like Penny or Drew and learn even more. Um, that, that's when they really hit their stride. And, and, that's, and that's where the vocabulary that they learned into the design school really begins to take off.
0: Right. Well, it seems like in our society, in the last 10 years, as you know, we've all adapted to technology and iPhones, there's been so much emphasis on learning technical skills, learning coding, which, you know, killed me before I'd ever learn how to do coding. But, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff has been valued in our society, although that is starting to change now with, you know, now we're realizing tech companies are, not, you know, all powerful and all good, certainly. So I think that, you know, again, it's a balance. And I guess that's your challenge at this school, the administration's challenge, David, is to balance learning the history, learning the principles, while also teaching all the technical stuff and how to create those drawings and use CAD and Reddit and whatever. Reddit? I don't even know what it's called. But anyway. (laughs) Reddit is a website. (laughs) You know, and I guess that's the hard thing. And now, just to touch on this briefly, we have the COVID situation. So how, how is the school responding to that? Because that's got to be a huge and difficult challenge.
2: Uh, how do you proceed to teach? Well, uh, uh, to say it's a challenge is an understatement, um, but we're doing it and doing it actually really well. Um, we obviously, like everybody else, shut down in the spring and we moved all of our classes to online platforms. Luckily, we already have a significant, about 20% of our students are enrolled in only online programs. So we have this technical know-how to do this. Um. So we did move everybody to online classes in the spring, continue that in the summer, but we're, we're doing on-site and online in the fall semester. But we learned an awful lot during this, and we learned how to better teach, actually, mm-hmm. by incorporating some of this technology that was forced upon us um, over the past six months. Uh, and there there are tools now. Um, it, it's absolutely amazing what you can learn uh, on how you can learn online in, in just terms of discussions like we're having right now, um, Zoom conversations that you, you, can, you can send drawings back and forth electronically. They could be marked up electronically. You can attach a, um, a file that has your verbal comments that can go back to the students. And it just it, it enhances the technical aspect of teaching is enhancing the traditional aspect of teaching. And, and the results come out in the student work. The student thesis projects in, in May were unbelievable. And um, we were a little nervous, just because we didn't know what was happening at some point. Um, but the student thesis projects were phenomenal, and I'm I'm really proud to say oh, that. Oh, that's great! Yeah. But at the same time, design
0: is a very tactile, visual experience, and it's you know I'd love to get a sense from Penny and Drew, like how do you get your staff, your younger designers, who obviously went to design school, since you're both big advocates of that. How do you keep them, you know, with the showrooms only being open by appointment, antique stores are not really open, it's much, it's harder. I mean, I know designers before complained to me that all their younger uh, staff members only wanted to buy online, but I would think now it's even harder. How do you, how do you handle that, Penny?
1: Well, I think that for people who wanted to buy online all this time, things didn't change that much. I think that the problem for me is that I discourage everyone in my office from buying things online, certainly buying them is like out of the question. Sourcing them is at least a start. I mean, you go, you take a first dibs kind of thing five years ago. I was very against Poor ever cherished. selling anything. For example, well, Cherish is a new wave, so it has new, so it's different in the sense that it it fits the times. So, but five years ago or ten years ago, when people first looked at something like a first dibs or any other online source, you were buying things very blind, and I very much discouraged it. I mean, I know all my other decorating colleagues did buy, but I, I felt very uncomfortable buying something from Minnesota and then having it come to New York and have to evaluate how that thing looked when I got it here. So I've always really pushed them going out into the market and they the younger people resist it. They want to sit on their chair and they don't want to go out. And I'm thinking, Gee, it's much more fun to go out and look for the things. I don't understand it. So you're asking me something that's very timely in that sense, because now, more than ever, people are going to want to source everything online and buy it online. And I'll tell you, during COVID, my clients were gung-ho shopping, buying, changing. They were wild. We were, we were, I'm so I like I want to, I need a vacation. So I had no slowdown and Several times I did shopping trips, virtual shopping trips with my clients at different stores in New York. For example, let's say Balsamo Antiques or Lindley in London. And my clients bought lots of things. And then when I finally emerged in my hazmat suit and went to look at some of the places that are just nearby, to just have a visual on some of these accessories. For example, I'm accessorizing a house in California now, you know, I gotta do it. So I went in person. And the scale of the items was so different in person than it was doing the visual walkthroughs. That could make a lot of mistakes, a lot of expensive mistakes. So I think we have a real conundrum here. It's one thing to say, gee, it's great. I don't have to see that cranky client. I could just talk to them on Zoom. I could shut the thing. I don't have to go over three hours.
3: Right, right. I think it's the balance of all things. I, I happen to love some of the new modern tools. I, I have a great cherished example of recently. I had a mid-century bar cart and I wanted to f- flank two walls with two bar carts. So I, I wanted another mid-century bar cart, but I didn't want it to be an exact replica. I wanted it to be different, but same at the same time. And so using those technical skills that you understand about scale predominantly, I gave myself a one inch limit on every dimension of the bar cart. So I went online through Cherish, First Dibs, you know, just Googling my brains out to find mid-century bar carts, all different styles and little by little between balance, scale, line, rhythm, all the design principles. Here's, you know, not, these are my lenses that I'm pulling through. And on Cherish, I have to tell you, I found the most magnificent complimenting bar cart that I ordered, yes. shipped. And it. I think it was a half inch wider or are shallower, you know, a quarter inch taller, you know, it's like, it was all under like one inch, you know, and I thought I'm going to give it a shot. And that was a great example to me of using those skills, using those things that, you know, as a designer, you know, some of it from experience, some of it from education, you know, to pull through the lens of, okay, I can do this. And then there's the other side, which I think Penny is talking about. It's there, there are things that there's no way anyone should ever touch, ever consider, ever dream of purchasing without laying your eyes on them. I think scale is one of the biggest misses for people who don't really go to the extent I did on the bar cart. You know, lighting, I find it's often, you know, just because they give you an overall dimension, you have no idea it gets there and it's like ginormous and you don't realize the volume of space it takes up just because you understood, you know, the circular the right, the right. circumference or the, right. the drop. I mean, I think that's a huge mistake people make, but- it's it's kind of the balance. That's where that's the way way we've moved with it is you know there are certain things we would never do and then there are certain things that we just work all the way around every side of the cube, and then say okay we'll take a chance.
2: And from an educational perspective, and we deal with that as well with our students. They come in and they're they're on their devices, and it's like no you're in New York City. You've got everything right at your fingertips. Where you can walk to the museums, the galleries, the showrooms. Like I said, the New York Design Center, the D and D, they're all within this walking distance of here. And you need to get out and touch this. You need to sit on it. You need to look at it—the scale, the proportion. And we're lucky that way because because we have it all at our fingertips.
3: I was going to ask Penny this: Do you feel this way? But I think part of being a designer and bringing you know an expertise to the table is that we spend years working with vendors and educating ourselves and building our team around people who we know what kind of products they produce. We understand their hand and how it works. We generally have a sense of the scale that's going to come out of something or the way that something's filled or the type of quality of material that they may use. And I think that's that's something that we bring to our clients in, in that relationship that's really built on trust. And clients really should value that. And I think most of them do. And then you get the one that's like, you know, nervous about every, you know, yeah. decision, decision that's made. But that's something I always want to remind people. Part of what we do in the background, part of what, you know, your fees are paying for are just the daily education that Penny and I are going through to say, we'll never work with this vendor again. That wasn't good. Or we'll always work with this vendor because they really believe in a quality that's just far and above the next three down the line. Do, right. do you agree, Penny? Is that
1: that we create groups of vendors who we can trust and know and therefore when we're selling those things to the clients we have a that we can stand behind it that we know right. that we are making the right decision because we have that experience with the vendor is that yep. what you're saying
3: absolutely and that helps you with all those things of being willing to sometimes make a decision without technically sitting on it, or, you know, you you have a a dialogue or an experience of of purchasing with certain people to say, I'd I'd
0: be willing to make a chance. It's interesting, because what you guys have just been talking about comes from your years of experience. But meanwhile, I guess it's David's responsibility, you know, the school's responsibility to sort of train the students so that when they come to work for you, they may not know that, Vendor X is much better than Vendor Y, but they're going to understand when they see the product of Vendor X and realize that that's the real thing. And
1: and, not, thing. and not at the beginning, they're not going to know that.
2: Right. right. That, that's what I was talking about right. earlier. Like you, 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 really, you, you learn the vocabulary, you learn the skills, you hone your skills in in your in your education. But once you get out there, you're you're not. You continue to learn, and that and it's a whole. It's a life is all about learning. I think um, that's why
1: <laughs> the internship thing is so critical. I feel that a lot of people come to me without some of the knowledge that they should come with, and then I don't think that they understand that the internship is something that's critical. Like a med student, I just don't think they get that.
2: Yeah, like I said, in- they internships think it's and men- a job, and, and, right. exactly, but but internships and mentorships especially are are incredibly important, and mentorships I think are. There, it's a different beast in internships, but it's a way to actually develop a relationship with a practicing designer and actually to kind of look over their shoulder and have them look over yours and look at your at your projects. And I know, and Drew, you participated in the mentorship program. Yeah, and to
3: celebrate NYSID a little bit, when David was at, at Director of Admissions and the president before, I remember going to my orientation, and I, I to this day, I always thought, gosh, that was such a strange way to talk about an education. But in orientation, he said, you know, our goal is for this education to be an appreciating asset. And I I remember thinking, that's such a strange way to think of it. I just hadn't thought of my education as appreciating asset. But what I would say about NYSID 10 years later is that the school actually does spend a tremendous amount of time and energy lifting up alumni who are out there in the workforce trying to be successful, who through, I, I've been very involved in the alumni association over the years, creating events with reputable vendors who are, you know, strong trade partnerships. And I, I've always been proud of nice and, and I think all the time, like, wow, you know, there, there's the Atelier magazine and there's a, a promo of something that I've done. I'm thinking this has been an appreciating asset. This school still stands behind me. Even, even this, even the three of us here being together, on this podcast, I think is some level of NYSID, you know, continuing to appreciate the great work that Penny and I are out there trying to execute. interior
2: design is, it's a community and we're lucky to be as, uh, what we do as an institution and what we do as a profession and where we do it, I mean, we're lucky um, because we're here to support each other. I mean, that's, I think that that's one of the, one of the reasons why I so enjoy being connected with the interior design profession is, is the sense of community that we have.
3: And circling back to COVID, I think that's a part of maybe the way that I'm starting to look at, at design and our community like post-COVID is like everybody's been punched in the stomach. I don't care who you are and how great you're trying to make your day look. We all have been punched in the gut by this thing. And I, it's, it's, it's a bootstraps kind of game. We all have to pick one another up and pull each other up by the bootstraps and reach back to those strong collaborations and strong partnerships and, and look to the vendors who have been fantastic through all the years and, and really get selective right. about pulling people up and getting back to a strong game again.
0: Right. We all have to support each other. And we're all, I think, I know I am continuing to learn every single day. Education does not stop. But clearly, NISAD gives you a great base. Maybe there's other areas you need to work on, David. I don't know. He's doing a pretty good job. I just need those interns a little bit.
1: Right, right,
3: right. (laughs) I've taken notes. Okay. I could use a couple of good interns too, David.
0: Okay. Internships, here we come. First. I get right. them first. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I went there first. Okay. Well, I want to thank you guys. Really, I found this a fascinating, you know, as somebody who is, never went to design school, I've always been fascinated by the process. And I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, Drew. And thank you, David. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Cherish Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Cherish Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague, or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.